Tēnā koutou no mai, hi to my welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. If the experts are to be believed, we're on the eve of another inflation blow. The Nationals finance spokesperson is here with us live. Then, a forceful message from Nanaia Mahuta. And I have seen far too much positivity in New Zealand to be pulled down by nameless, faceless critics. And a year since a storm smashed the region, will Marlborough's roads ever be fixed? This is the second largest roading repair works or uh, event in New Zealand, second only to the Christchurch earthquake. I'll have that story for you shortly, but first, the Consumer Price Index will be released tomorrow, and if most forecasts are correct, it's going to be a doozy. Inflation could well be above 7%. Documents released by National Finance Postperson Nicola Willis show Treasury warned about the impact of government spending on inflation before the budget was released in May. And Nicola Willis is with us this morning. Kia ora, welcome to Q&A. Kia ora, great to be here. I will start off uh, with the line you released this week. The Treasury warned the government before this year's budget that spending more money than planned would increase interest rates, but they did it anyway. In December, Grant Robertson signalled $6 billion in new spending in the budget. In the end, he spent $5.9 billion. So what am I missing? How is 5.9 more than 6? Well, because what Grant Robertson did was on top of that $6 billion, he added spending from next year's budget and the budget after that. He added climate change spending and he added a cost of living payment. So all up, he spent $9.5 billion rather than just the 6 he'd forecast in December. So the climate change spending comes out of the ETS, so that's ring fence that comes into the ETS and goes straight out again. Mm-hmm. The spending for next year, the $4.5 billion, was supported by Treasury. So that doesn't count either. That, that, there's also money that hasn't been spent yet and so can't be contributing to inflation just yet. Well, what Treasury uh, based their assessment on was the Finance Minister adding $6 billion in spending. At that point, what was predicted was that in the year following, the government would be spending $120 billion all up. What actually happened by the time Grant Robertson added in the cost of living payment, the bringing forward some of the climate change spending, uh, spending next year's budgets, was that that went to $127 billion. So what we know is that the expenditure that had occurred in the budget was a lot more than had been forecast in December. And what Treasury said was, if you do that, just be aware that's going to put pressure on inflation, it's going to put pressure on interest rates. And I think, Jack, what we're seeing in the economy is there is a lot of pressure on inflation. There is a lot of pressure on interest rates. We now have the highest inflation we've had in 30 years. Mm. And yes, some of that is global. I absolutely acknowledge that. But what we also know is that a large portion of it is domestic. Non-tradable inflation is running at 6%. Mm. And what we see is that the Reserve Bank is now lifting interest rates faster than it ever has in history. Uh, And that's having a big impact on Mm. mortgage holders, on New Zealanders, and that's a concern. National said repeatedly in the lead-up to the budget it would also spend that $6 billion as part of the operational allowance, the new spending, if you like. So that would have been similarly inflationary. Well, no, that's not quite right, because what National consistently said was that we would spend $1.7 billion on a package of tax reduction. 
And that is a big material difference because our preference was to ensure New Zealanders could keep more of their own money mm. rather than simply providing that to government departments to spend on government pet projects. And of course, the impact there would be that New Zealanders would have more disposable income. Right. Can you explain to me how tax cuts are not inflationary? Well, in that same Treasury paper that uh, you referred to that I released this week, mm. they said that their research over several years shows that tax reduction has less impact on inflation than Crown expenditure. It's our view that tax reduction would have meant that many New Zealanders would have used it to cover the bills, the increasing cost of yoghurt, mm. uh, that sort of thing, but others might have saved a little uh, and they certainly would have been very careful with how they spent that and it's my view that you can't say that about all of the spending that the government's doing. It's not all as careful as it needs to be. How much lower would inflation be today if National had been in charge of this year's budget? Well that's obviously a very difficult uh, assessment to make but what Treasury do say is that for every percentage extra of GDP that you're spending, mm. uh, you can expect that that's going to uh, put pressure on interest rates to the effect of about 30 basis points. So what we know is this, if governments are disciplined about mm. their spending, if governments reduce bottlenecks in the economy, and I'm thinking for example our immigration pathways, ensuring we have enough people in the labour force, if governments resist the urge to add more costs to business, uh, then overall they can have an effect on inflation and it's our view that this government hasn't done enough to put forward a plan to address the domestic drivers of inflation. What would you have cut? in order to fund those tax cuts. Well, You've we, been asked this so many times. Well, one big thing we wouldn't have done, Jack, is Three Waters reform. We don't think that the government has a mandate from New Zealand communities mm. for that reform, and it comes with a big price ticket. Three billion uh, that program will cost. Another thing we wouldn't have done is put $650 million towards what I call corporate welfare, that is subsidising firms uh, to make uh, climate change investments mm. when we think they should make those investments otherwise. We wouldn't have put $370 million towards a merger of RNZ and TVNZ. We think TVNZ is just fine as it is. Uh, we wouldn't have put $200 million towards a business case for Auckland Light Rail. We wouldn't have put $183 million uh, towards uh, implementing RMA reforms that there isn't even final legislation for yet. Uh, we wouldn't have put tens of millions of dollars uh, towards capacity adjustments across the public service, which reads as mm. more public servants. So when we look across the budget, there are various things which we think don't reflect the priorities New Zealanders have and which give us confidence the government could have funded tax reduction if that was its priority. Christopher Luxon spoke this week about tying health spending to inflation. I want to be clear, is that the National Party's position and would you support that? Well, what we are very focused on is ensuring that New Zealanders can rely on effective health services. Mm. And we're realistic. We have an ageing population, and that means that the demands on our health service are going to continue to grow. Mm. We also acknowledge uh, that our nurses and doctors are rightly going to expect pay increases in the future. Mm. So that means every budget that National delivers will include an increase in health expenditure. That will be a priority for me as Finance Minister. Right. And how we achieve that, what the formula is, is something that we're looking at carefully. But I want to tell you this, yeah. because this is an important distinction between us and Labour. Where we put in extra dollars, we want it to absolutely end up on the front line 
not in backroom bureaucracy. And our concern is that Labor got rid of health targets, which has meant that a lot of dollars have been wasted in the backroom. Talk to me more about that inflation idea, though, wh whether or not you should peg spending in health and maybe education to inflation. Is that something you would personally support? Well, what I personally support is ongoing increases to the funding mm. to both health and education operations. But you haven't decided about whether or not we haven't match determined inflation. that exactly okay. yet. But we are going to be making increases in the right. as a first priority. Okay. In any budget. Uh, we saw uh, some numbers from Statistics New Zealand regarding food prices. So they're up 6.6% in June this year compared to this time last year. The Commerce Commission found the supermarket duopoly are making excessive profits. So what would a national government do about it? Well, I was really concerned to read that report. It said we've got an effective duopoly. We need more competition in the supermarket sector. So we've been very supportive of the government's reforms in that area because we want to see a third entrant uh, enter our supermarkets. We want to see consumers getting a better deal. What we've also said is we can't put all of the increase in prices in mm. the recent times down to the lack of competition because, of course, uh, the lack of competition has been a long-standing issue, whereas food price inflation has really taken off in the past couple of years. Will National pause contributions to the Superfund? We are going to look at the fiscal conditions that we inherit. What I think it's important that New Zealanders understand mm. is that we're not intending as a country under Grant Robertson to have the books back in balance until 2025. We're still racking up extra debt uh, every day that goes by at the well, moment. There has been a pandemic. There has been a pandemic, but at some point... Pandemic for, for which you supported most of the stimulatory spending. Yeah, but what I'd also point out to you, Jack, is that we have record low unemployment. Mm. And what that typically means is that the government has to spend less on welfare support but what we're seeing at the moment is despite that record low unemployment the government is still spending huge amounts of money and doesn't have a part to get the books back mm. in balance until 2025 so we want to look at the fiscal conditions mm. and assess is it prudent to be borrowing uh, to make those contributions. Well, well, it, it, with fiscal conditions as they stand keeping in mind an elections 18 months away maybe slightly less what do you think? Is it likely that National would support pausing those contributions next year? Well, it's likely that National will want to keep the super fund going and we will want to keep contributions going towards that super fund. The exact amount of those will depend on the books that we inherit right. from Grant Robertson. Do you want house prices to keep falling? Look, I, I, I've always been really upfront about this. I'm from a generation where far too many people can't afford to own their own home. And that's because house prices have got completely out of whack with incomes. And I want to see housing more affordable mm. uh, for more people in New Zealand. And my um, perspective as a homeowner is the gains we saw in house prices in recent years were always going to be unsustainable. They weren't at a level that actually was realistic. And so I think it's realistic to expect that house prices will come back a bit and what we want to see over time is that the ratio of income to house prices mm. gets a bit more sensible. How, how far back do they need to come? How much do you want to see them drop? Well what Treasury has said is that they're expecting, sorry the Reserve Bank has said that they're mm. expecting house prices to come back about 15% from mm. their highs. Uh, that seems to be a bit of a consensus expectation. I want to acknowledge Jack that for some people watching this that is a really painful thing to hear because mm. if you're a person who leveraged big time, 
to buy your first house in a massively inflated market, you're now looking at the steep cliff of rising interest rates and a drop in the equity in your home. So I want to acknowledge that that is mm. really tough for some people. But I also think fundamentally for this to be an economy that's strong and prosperous into the future where people are included and can look that they can get a path ahead, yeah. then we need to be able to have a situation where people who work hard and save hard can afford to buy their own home. What's your pick for the number tomorrow? Oh, well, look, uh, the, yeah, ANZ are picking that it'll be over seven, but I'd be wrong to get out my crystal ball because sometimes these numbers undershoot. What we yeah. know is this. Every time New Zealanders go to the supermarket right now, every time they fill up at the pump, they can feel that prices mm. are totally out of whack. And the sad thing is wages aren't keeping up. So people are going backwards, and that's a real concern to me. Thank you very much for your time. National Finance spokesperson Nicola Willis. Next on Q&A, withdrawals and disputes mar the Pacific Islands Forum. So what does it mean for China's expansion in our region? Welcome back. It has been a Pacific Islands Forum for the ages. Kiribati pulled out, the Cook Islands Prime Minister didn't show, and member states remain divided on the future role that China should or shouldn't play in the Pacific. Foreign Minister Nanaima Huta has just returned from the forum in Fiji, and I asked her to what extent the Pacific is splintering. I think we need to consider to what extent is the Pacific exercising uh, the centrality of their ambition in a really contested space. And at the Pacific Island Forum, the fact that the 250 strategy for the Blue Pacific uh, continent has been confirmed that we're talking about Kiribati and not the whole of the Micronesian states, it does indicate that the overall aspiration within the Pacific is to remain uh, unified, but also to keep the door open for Kiribati. And we've also got to be mindful that the Pacific are asserting their key issues in a way that bring the attention towards and the focus towards what the Pacific Sea as a way forward. And those issues are climate change, certainly the issue around solidarity and working together uh, and in a comprehensive way, focusing on the 250 strategy and also looking at ways to ensure greater economic resilience. What will happen if more Pacific countries go with the support of China and other Pacific countries decide to stay with their traditional allies? I don't think it's a binary choice for the Pacific. When I consider the conversations that are being had, uh, there is a, a quite a strong reflection that China has been present and consistent in the region since about the 1970s. They have bilateral relationships. Uh, the space is more contested. Other superpowers are showing an interest in the Pacific. And the Pacific uh, countries, like New Zealand, are navigating their way through a complex set of relationships, but actually the focus does come back to Pacific-led priorities and solutions for some complex challenges of this time. Now, China wasn't welcome at the forum itself, but the day after, literally the day after, CCP officials held a virtual meeting with various political leaders from across the Pacific. If the first option was considered too disruptive, what do you make of that second option? I think the first option was uh, certainly the tone set by the uh, Secretariat and our host uh, Fiji was to ensure that the focus was on the unity of the Pacific and that the agenda was very much on the Suva Agreement, confirming the 2050 strategy and everything else was peripheral so, to so, that. So why does China being at the forum not represent unity? I think it's Pacific-led uh, 
uh, solutions by the Pacific first and foremost. Mm. That's how I sense the tone of the conversations and the focus of the forum uh, for this time. So what do you make of China holding that second virtual meeting with political leaders from across the Pacific the day after the forum ended? Oh, well, usually there's a, uh, a conversation for strategic partners afterwards that wasn't held. So it wasn't a surprise. New Zealand wasn't invited. I'm not sure what the detail of those conversations were. Uh, but we shouldn't uh, be, uh, I guess, um, uh, thinking that this was uh, something not expected. When the Solomon's China deal was signed, you said you wanted it to be discussed at the forum. Was it? In a, in a strategic sense, uh, there, there was a conversation around regional security uh, and regional sovereignty, and the 250 strategy elevates uh, the focus for the Pacific. Uh, and it was really useful uh, to hear PM Sogavari say that uh, the, the agreement will not lead to the militarisation of Honiara. Uh, that is an affirming statement, and that certainly uh, addresses much of the concern that New Zealand had outlined in relation to that. We had a really interesting interview with Rodney Jones a couple of weeks ago in which he said, China's moves in the Pacific warrant a rethink for our military resourcing in the Pacific. What do you think? Yeah, one of the things that we are doing, and, and this builds to our urging of the Pacific to look towards each other first, is we're consulting uh, on our defence assessment with our Pacific neighbours. Uh, and that's a clear indication that not only does New Zealand value uh, its relationship and contribution to support mm. regional security arrangements, but we in consulting on our defence uh, arrangements are uh, wanting to seek views uh, from the Pacific about what more could be done. Uh, we also have uh, regional declarations that uh, enable us to look mm. to each other first, the Boi and the Bikatawa declaration. So again, this all puts the centrality of a Pacific focus on mm. defence arrangements as a matter of import and in a way that we can look to each other first. Would our partners like to see the New Zealand military armed with drones? By and, by and large, the Pacific are, are very supportive of how we stand ready and willing to respond very quickly to natural disasters, civil mm. unrest, but also in ways that we are supporting uh, other partners in the Pacific to act uh, with a level of urgency when we're needed, like Australia, like mm. Fiji, like PNG, like we did in the most recent civil unrest for the Solomons. Yeah. In terms of uh, maritime surveillance, there's a lot of conversation in relation to fishing uh, within the region, how mm. uh, more could be done. Uh, and Integrated, integrated approach uh, towards maritime surveillance uh, because of uh, illegal unreported uh, fishing activities. In that space, mm. there is a, uh, a sense that we can work together differently and should work together differently to strengthen maritime surveillance. What might that look like, strengthen maritime surveillance? Uh, it would look like, uh, if, if you think about the whole of the Pacific, so mm. the, from the Micronesian states, Melanesia, down to Polynesia, really thinking about strategic cooperation in the way that we work together to, to patrol our uh, maritime space in relation to fisheries activities. And that's the conversation that has been had amongst the, the uh, forum fisheries uh, grouping. I realise this is just a conversation at the moment, but does that mean drones? It could mean a number of things. Could it uh, mean drones? It, it could mean uh, drones. It could also mean uh, extra maritime uh, support as well as uh, 
aviation support as well. But what it really means is a greater strategic uh, and cooperative way of working together using a range of uh, um, assets to be able to ensure greater coverage across the maritime um, area. Could those assets include arming New Zealand's military with anti-ship missiles? Look, that's a level of detail that, I, that I'll leave for the Minister of Defence to make an assessment as we continue to engage in conversations that being considered at the moment? around the fisheries issue. Uh, but the fact that we are consulting with the Pacific mm. uh, on our uh, defence approach I think signals that we are willing to hear back from our Pacific partners about what the need is, how we're able to respond and therefore the consequences of what a response looks like. Are there lessons in the events in Sri Lanka in the last week for the Pacific? A couple of things on Sri Lanka. I think we're all really mindful that the point at which Sri Lanka has uh, reached um, uh, its um, political unrest because of economic vulnerability is something we should be concerned about and is something that can be considered in relation to the uh, level of economic vulnerability mm. across the Pacific. Secondly, uh, we hope for a peaceful way of resolving the situation of appointing and electing uh, a president and a prime minister and that the constitutional arrangements uh, provide some guidance for that. If I step right back and, and say, OK, what are the lessons here? And at a time when there's rising inflation, constrained supply chains, uh, greater economic hardship, uh, the lesson is that we need to find ways to ensure that across the Pacific that we're working together to enable uh, labour mobility that supports specific aspirations, economic architecture mm -hmm. that enables us to work towards outcomes that help the Pacific, but the issue of economic vulnerability in the Pacific is a key matter that needs to be addressed as well. Will we take practical steps to call on our friends and allies to relieve debt of those small nations in the Pacific? We are engaging in that approach, especially when we think about uh, the way in which uh, other uh, development partners fund uh, projects in the Pacific. Uh, you, you'll be aware that the way that New Zealand funds is largely by grant uh, funding. Um, we would like to see the opportunity of development partners to look towards greater coordination of its efforts. Mm. Climate change provides us an opportunity to work very differently. Uh, New Zealand will use uh, our commitment over the 2022-25 period of 1.3 uh, billion uh, of which 50% will go into the Pacific as an opportunity to leverage with other development partners mm. as to how you would work differently uh, in the Pacific to support Pacific-led outcomes in terms of climate change challenges. Are any Pacific nations too indebted to China? I'd say there's a level of indebtedness that sits across the whole of the Pacific to financial institutions, including the way in which China has funded into certain uh, countries. Uh, what I would say at a very general level is that this is a key area of vulnerability mm. that should be addressed and we need to find different ways to work together on the challenges that sit within the Pacific and largely they're around infrastructure, um, responding to climate change uh, and existing levels of debt and being able to service them. Mm. Will the partners in the Blue Pacific Pact share any intelligence or security information? 
I think what we can do uh, absolutely is work more strategically together as I've referred to, to ensure that the way in which we invest in to support the Pacific around significant mm. challenges of climate change responses is an area that we can work together. Also the health of the oceans uh, is another area. And, the, and I guess the way in which we share a range of information to be able to help that decision making uh, will be for a greater benefit um, to enable the Pacific. So that doesn't quite answer the question. Will it, will it involve any sharing of intelligence or security information? It'll involve a range of things. Again, working strategically together around the way in mm. which we invest. Uh, yes, sharing information, uh, lots of different types of info, lots of different information to be able to make a, a good assessment mm. about how we can help the Pacific. And you know, these are early days. We continue to be optimistic. Mm about the, how the Pacific are articulating their priorities. The 2050 strategy uh, that has been recently released from the Pacific help coordinate a conversation that works to the advantage of the Pacific. Coming up, Key, English, Bridges, Muller, Collins, Luxon. Did I leave anyone out? the inside story of the National Party's leadership turmoil. But after the break, opposition MPs have accused Nanaia Mahuta of a conflict of interest over jobs awarded to her family. And you're going to want to see the Minister's response. Hōki we welcome back to Q&A. It's almost a year since the Taliban took control of Afghanistan. Since then, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs has been working to evacuate Afghans who helped New Zealand forces during the war. And for the most part, it's been a major success. At the start of this month, I joined a group of those who were evacuated from Afghanistan in an emotional reunion as they thanked the Kiwi volunteers who helped to save their lives. But as you'll see, it's not yet mission accomplished. It was a quiet Sunday, lunchtime, and a group of Afghan New Zealanders gathered in central Auckland, waiting for their special guests. The kids' printouts were pretty clear, six words in English that they didn't know they needed this time last year. Thanks, Alan, for saving my life. When Afghanistan fell to the Taliban in August last year, New Zealand's government committed to help. Now we are looking to deploy an asset in order to facilitate the removal of both New Zealanders, but those that we consider may be at risk because of their association with New Zealand. It opened up a special visa for those people who'd helped the New Zealand Defence Force in Afghanistan, and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs coordinated their evacuations. For former Army officers Chris Parsons and Alan Nelson, it was a deeply personal crisis. Having both served in Afghanistan, Alan and Chris worked around the clock coordinating lists of names and paperwork to help save the lives of those people who'd once protected theirs. This is the result. More than 1,700 people on various visas have been evacuated from Afghanistan to Aotearoa since the Taliban seized power last year. So I think the government has done overall a great job. You know, we, we made this, or well, the country made this promise to bring these people to New Zealand, and for the most part they've achieved that. But there are a small portion of people that I don't think the government has fully met their obligation yet. And this was the underlying vein of sadness at an otherwise joyous reunion. 
For all the people who have been saved by Alan and Chris and the New Zealand government, there is still a handful of people who haven't been able to come. Some have had their visas declined for reasons that aren't clear, but some never even had a chance to apply. Despite working alongside the New Zealand forces, the government gave them a tiny window within which to apply for a visa to get out. In the chaos and violence of the Taliban takeover, some of those who worked alongside our defence force never even knew about the visa until applications were closed. There was only a nine-day window for people to apply for this uh, visa, which is you know, pretty tight when you're in the process of you know, hiding and running away from the Taliban. And so the government set that deadline, all well and good, but people missed it and they have been unwilling uh, to reconsider allowing an extension on that deadline. Why isn't clear. The previous Minister of Immigration wouldn't be interviewed by TVNZ Sunday when they questioned him about the deadline earlier this year. But those who did get out estimate just 10 families, 60 or 70 people, are left. To be honest, especially the, the Romero-based security guards, they were up on the mountains when the window were open and, and they should be included because they were fearing for their life and they had escaped to the mountain from a Taliban prosecution. Parwiz Hakimi was a translator for New Zealand's forces. He implored me to talk about Mohammed Murad, a former guard at a New Zealand operating base who'd missed out on the visa deadline. Shortly after applications closed, Mohammed's friends believe he was caught by the Taliban and shot dead. His wife and family remain stuck in Afghanistan. If the government don't bring those guys who are eligible, that means the Prime Minister hasn't fulfilled her, his, her promise. It's almost a year since the Taliban seized Afghanistan. In two weeks, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs will close its evacuation operation for good. But while Kabul starves under the oppressive Taliban rule, in Auckland, they're shedding happy tears. They've made it, they say, 95% of the way. They just need to finish the job. Please do reconsider these visas that have been declined. Please do reconsider this arbitrary cut-off date. Uh, it doesn't make sense and it's not in line with uh, what the government promised, which was to bring eligible people here to New Zealand. What the government promised, which was to bring eligible people here to New Zealand. Kia ora. Kia ora. And how do you feel when you watch that? Look, I think New Zealand overall has done an amazing job of bringing 1,700 people from Afghanistan back during a really difficult time. And when we set the criteria, it was during the period of an emergency evacuation when the US had signalled that they had a finite point to get out. And we were very mindful that the security issues on the ground and actually the logistics on the ground were at its most precarious and complex. When I think about the amount of coordination uh, that's gone into ensuring that we were able to stand up across government agencies mm. here in New Zealand, at least 100 people, if not a little bit more, during the heightened period of coordination to bring people back, it was a lot of work. And then we announced on the 29th of April this year uh, that we will address uh, the remaining eligible applicants on a case-by-case -case basis. Mm. We, we recognise we've still got work to do. My understanding is that we've got about 45 people that 
by the end of July and some weeks after, we'll still be facilitating mm. the ability to bring them back. And then so far we have had uh, 19 people for a range of reasons reflect back to us uh, that they are not seeking to come back mm. uh, uh, or come to New Zealand. And there are a number of reasons for that. So, so what about these people who would have qualified <coughs> under that emergency visa because of their association with New Zealand but were unable to apply for that visa and have been unable to apply for that visa ever so? Look, the detail of, of the application process and their eligibility uh, is a matter that I would uh, fairly and squarely uh, put with the uh, Minister of Immigration in mm. terms of the processing elements of it. But in terms of the uh, way in which we've uh, set ourselves up mm. to respond, uh, since the 29th of April this year, we are dealing with the remaining number of applicants mm. that are eligible on a case-by-case -case basis. Yeah, but the problem with these people specifically, and I know that the Minister of Immigration plays a role here, but the truth of the matter is that MFAT was the leading agency when it comes to the evacuation in the first place and the, the cross-checking and compiling of the lists of people who did indeed work with the New Zealand forces. Would you, in your capacity, advocate for opening the eligibility of that visa even if only for a day, so that people who might be considered eligible will have an opportunity to apply. Look, I'm, I'm not mandated to be able to do that. When we took the decision uh, to set up a, uh, a set of criteria mm. for a finite period of time, that was a Cabinet decision. And so we have stuck to that Cabinet mm. decision in terms of the way in which we've processed those who are eligible and have applied uh, to come to New Zealand. Would you support that if it came before Cabinet? Look, I, I'm not prepared to make a decision uh, in the absence of a conversation uh, at Cabinet level because the criteria was set by Cabinet. Mm. Is it kind to leave these people behind? Look, it's been a challenge and I recognise that and uh, this is a highly emotive issue for mm. uh, those who will feel that they were not included within the limitations of the criteria that was set for a very specific purpose, an emergency evacuation mm. with a finite period because the logistics of getting people mm. out were pretty difficult. We have enabled 1,700 visa applicants to be able to come to New this Zealand. This is the thing, we're so and close. I, and it's like yeah, there's we cut are. a few dozen more. We are, and, that's and, it. and it will always be a, a, a few more, a few more. I understand that. In terms of the refugee quota mm. uh, that will be applied to Afghan citizens that will take place in 23, mm. 24, we have that avenue. And that is another avenue mm. uh, to be able to address uh, some of the issues that have been raised in that particular piece. I want to talk about your family. Yeah. ACT leader David Seymour and National MP Simeon Brown have questioned members of your family receiving government contracts in the time that you have been a government minister. Have you ever had an undeclared or mishandled conflict of interest as a cabinet minister? I've had uh, uh uh, situation over these number of years to really consider my family obligations. So I have declared conflicts, they've been managed appropriately and in accordance with the Cabinet Manual, uh, certainly since I've been a Minister. And the challenge for me, I guess, is just how um, toxic the attacks have been. Because even though I say that, and even though you know there's been a lot of OIAs and things like that, the level of toxicity of the attacks have been really challenging uh, to, um, I guess, manage. 
But again, I come from a family that since the time of my father, he negotiated the first treaty settlement, got similar uh, targets against him personally. Also my mother, who negotiated the Waikato River claim and the co-governance arrangements there. Now, because I'm pushing through a, a set of reforms that I think will have beneficial impacts for the environment and for people long term, and that is in the area of water reform. You know, these are all issues that have challenged the nation. I think some of the attacks have been targeted at the individual rather than the issue. Um, but in terms of conflicts of interest, again, I've declared a conflict of interest. They've been managed appropriately and in accordance with the Cabinet manual. I know politics is a mucky business at the best of times, but can I ask, in, in what ways have you felt the attacks have been toxic? Well, I've stopped looking at them now. But uh, there have been politically aligned advocacy groups uh, that have uh, said uh, things and created a perception that have been harmful, unkind and damaging, leading to cartoons and memes and social media posts in commentary which you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy, actually. And when I think about that, I think to myself, well, Actually, on the issues that I'm, I'm promoting, I'm happy to be held accountable on issues. But when you have criticisms coming from dark corners, closed rooms, people who hide behind pseudonyms, um, and you know they're politically motivated and they are attached uh, to political parties, you just, I think you've got to look for some internal fortitude as to the reason you know, why that's happening. I don't think it's a reflection of our society, a true reflection. I think, by and large, New Zealanders are fair-minded. They do want transparency and accountability, and as a politician, I accept that. Mm. I accept that. But when you go to a level of uh, toxic trolling and use of social media to push a certain narrative, to create a certain perception, I worry about that not just for myself but for the future and health and well-being of a lot of people who do really difficult things that may not be popular but they're necessary for the benefit of people and for the benefit of the next generation and the environment mm. yet they're subjected to that kind of criticism but no one will ever come out truly in front and say these things to your face instead it's very convenient to hide behind closed doors or behind a keyboard and use that avenue to make their point do you think it's because you're Māori? I think it's a number of things. Because I'm a person who has served my community, who thinks that New Zealand deserves uh, a different kind of way forward, and I am a mother, you know, um, as a Māori woman, um, in, a, in a space where it isn't always easy. I think all those aspects might be targets in and of themselves. Will that stop me doing what I think is right or serving the people that I have been elected to serve and having a vision for New Zealand that is better and, and more confident about who we are biculturally and multiculturally? It's not going to stop me. Mm. It makes my resolve even more stronger because I know New Zealand's better than that. I just know it. And I have seen far too much positivity in New Zealand to be pulled down by nameless, faceless critics who want to create a perception that is designed to do nothing else but bring out the worst in people, and I won't let that happen. Thank you very much for your time. Kilda. Kilda. That is Nanaya Mahuta. If you want to contact the Q&A team, please call it or my. These are our main platforms. You can email us if you like, or find us on Twitter or Facebook.
Coming up, it's been a year and still the orange cones and stop-go signs rule this part of New Zealand. Why is it taking so long to fix these roads? Hoki mai, hoki mai. The impact of climate change is something many communities in New Zealand are just beginning to grapple with. But for some places like the Marlborough Sounds, the crisis feels especially urgent as the area continues to rebuild from a storm that wrecked their roads a year ago. Jessica Roden reports. A view of paradise brings many to the Marlborough Sounds. But for the last year, paradise has come with a cost. Mentally, I think it's been stressful on a level of 1 to 10, probably around about the 7 or 8. For more than four months last year, hundreds of residents were trapped in the sounds, unable to leave unless by boat. Personally, it's just been a, a shambles. In July, a massive storm hit the top of the south and the west coast too. It caused chaos, hillsides gave way, this massive boulder the size of a car blocked this road for weeks. Immediately there was 460 kilometres of road uh, damaged and we had 350 kilometres of road closed. So it's a significant impact. The remote Marlborough Sounds among the worst hit. Kinipuru Road, which snakes around the bay, connects many in the outer sounds to the mainland. But for a long time it was impassable which made life tough for people like Rob. He runs a honey company with hives spread throughout the sounds. The biggest problem was that the way the flood happened was we have hives, slips, hives, slips, hive slips. So it was uh, virtually impossible to get to some of the hives at all. His business brought to its knees. Before um, COVID uh, and this weather event, we were running just over 2,000 units. Uh, we're now back to around 1,300 units. And we've gone from a staff of um, eight back to a staff of just two now. This is what Kinipuru Road looks like at the moment, essentially a construction site. Residents still, even now, one year on, unable to come and go as they please. This is the reality for many in the Marlborough Sounds. We're here on the Kinipuru Road, which on a weekday is closed between 8am and 5pm. It's one o'clock now though, and these cars are lining up because this is their one chance to get through to get out of the Sounds. If they miss this, they'll be waiting four more hours. The ongoing road closures are having a huge impact on the community, with many saying progress on the repairs has been too slow. Every day that goes by where we have restrictions, um, basically it costs money. What I think is that the, the four main sites, they didn't concentrate on those. In the, in, they still haven't concentrated on them. He's talking about sites like this, where the council say the issues are so complex they're still trying to figure out how to repair them. This is the second largest roading repair works or uh, event in New Zealand, second only to the Christchurch earthquake, local roads I'm talking about. The ongoing impact, perhaps the worst for farmers like Nikolai. He moved here just before the storm. Well, it's been exciting, but also very challenging. It's, um, didn't really sign up for the road to 
to go out and now yeah, we just face a whole lot of new challenges. One of those challenges, the fact stock trucks can't come in. Instead, sheep and cattle have to be moved by barge at a huge cost. We get a lot of stuff delivered into Fish Bay and then, of course, it's an hour to get over there, an hour back. The barge is only an estimated time of arrival, so sometimes you end up waiting. You know, you, you could kill half a day. They've promised us we'll get truck and trailers back on the road, so we'll hold them to it. Can you guarantee that stock trucks will be able to return to the Kinipuru Road? I don't think we can guarantee at this point that stock trucks can return. That's our intention, but we can't guarantee it. After our interview, the council promised to pay half the cost for farmers to use the barge. We're trying to put in place and plug every little gap that we can see uh, in order to try and bring as much normality as we can to a situation which we know is absolutely not normal. The last year has left many in the Marlborough Sounds anxious and concerned about the future. Part of the reason for that is the fact the earth has continued to move. Many people have told me that when it rains they hold their breath, concerned that something like July could happen again. Even this week's storm causing yet another slip on the fragile road. There's no doubt that the frequency of these weather events is increasing, as is the intensity. So we need to be prepared uh, for future events which are no longer one in 100 year, one in 50 year events. They're now looking like at least one in 10 years. And in Moitapu Bay, being prepared meant a new jetty. To get there, we have to be driven in because the road was only open to residents. The damage still pretty severe. Residents were stuck here for weeks, supplies coming in by helicopter. At that point, we realised that we had an issue here in terms of evacuating uh, people in the event of an emergency. With no public jetty, they fundraised $300,000 and built their own. In their words, for next time. 100% it will happen again. 100%. Does that make you reconsider living here? Yes, yeah, it does. Yeah. I, find it, I found it quite frightening. And she's not the only one, some have already left. Recent sea level rise data shows Marlborough Sounds is among the most vulnerable areas. The council is currently 3D mapping the region to create a plan for the future. It's a beautiful space and a beautiful place and I think in and of itself people will always be drawn to it. But I think that people that live in places like the Marlborough Sounds will want to understand a lot more what the implications of climate change are. For now though, all residents can do is try to cope with what's in front of them. At best it will be another year, at least, before the road is fixed. And all that time locals will be crossing their fingers, the storms stay away. Jessica Roden with that report. After the break. National went from the highs of key and English to disunity, defeat and despair. So, is the internal warfare over? Resignations, leaks, secret recordings and leaders gone rogue. In the five years since John Key resigned as Prime Minister, the National Party caucus has lived a rich and colourful experience. Staff senior journalist Andrea Vance has detailed the bloodletting, the conniving and eventual path to relative political stability in her new book, Blue Blood, the inside story of the National Party in crisis. Kia ora, good morning. Good morning. I want to start uh, with John Key's resignation. That's where the book starts. 
Do you think, upon reflection, John Key did a good job of his succession planning? Gosh, this is a $64 million question. Um, it's really interesting because I, I kind of thought when I started to write the book, I kind of thought that he did. But then one really senior um, National Party figure said, said to me, listed all the names, mm. you know, the Simon Bridges, Nikki Kay, um, you know, Judith Collins and uh, Todd Muller. And he said, well, they all blew it. So, mm. so it was best laid plans and all that. But I think in politics, you can't underestimate events and you can't underestimate um, the heights of people's ambitions and egos. Mm. And, you know, that's just politicians, that's just political parties. They're full of alpha people. Yes. Um, the book covers a particularly tumultuous period. And I want to talk about two destabilising figures in particular. First of all, Jamie Lee Ross. How significant was Jamie Lee Ross's role in, in those destabilising times? I think... Um, Significant for Simon Bridges' leadership, significant in the whole House of Cards falling down, maybe not as much as we would think. Um, I think it was inevitable that it was going to happen that way, it was going that way. What, why is that? Why do you think it was inevitable? Um, because the train wreck was already in motion by then, you know. So what happened, a key theme of the book is that, yes, there was all this great succession planning mm. in place, but but because the key English Joyce machinery was so tight, so hierarchical and so successful that um, there was underlying frustrations and resentments and everyone, everyone, when Key left, everyone saw their chance. Like, mm. This is my chance to be, because every politician essentially wants to be prime minister or leader at some point. And so that everyone was jockeying for, for there was a lot of power plays going on. And so, yes, Jamie Lee Ross was, it, it, it brought down Simon Le Simon's mm. leadership and it, then it set a whole lot of events in train. But essentially that could have been anything. That would have, I think that would have happened anyway. That's interesting. What about the role of outgoing party president Peter Goodfellow? What responsibility does he bear for the instability? Well, in that he was part of the top team, I suppose, as much, maybe not as much as, as some of the senior figures, but certainly um, he was part of the establishment of the culture. And there were war warning signs. He was part, you know, he, I think he, he took over the leadership in 08, 09. Um, and there were warning signs all the way through about um, the tensions, mm. the ambitions, the figures like Jamie Lee Ross and Judith Collins, and, and none of that was acted on. Um, a lot of power was concentrated centrally, mm. both in the board and in his leadership or his presidency, and then in the in the top people at the top, which sort of led to everything falling apart. So yeah, I think he, he does. I mean, he kept he kept the party going, he kept the money flowing mm. in, which is massively important for the National Party. And um, but then he was involved in very intensely in a lot of those leadership, uh, sorry, in a lot of those candidate selections, which then. <laughs> Led to Jamie Lee Ross. Terribly well. No, Andrew Falloon, <laughs> yeah. you know, Hamish Walker, all those things. So yeah, he does he does have a part to play. Certainly there's some responsibility there. Uh, I know it's always impossible to prove a counterfactual, <laughs> but what do you think would have been the likeliest course for National if we'd never had COVID nineteen? Oh, that gosh, that's a great question. Because they were polling really well. They were, yeah. Yeah, well, certainly, and this is one of the things, again, that led to, led to what happened. Um, in, when 2017 happened and Winston was mm. king, queen maker, um, the National Party did 
were very resentful, mm -hmm. you know, and it even says that in the National Party report into the 2020 defeat. Mm -hmm. They do say that there was a culture of resentment that stemmed from that election, not defeat, but loss, I guess. Um, and so, so, yeah, in a way, I've lost my train of thought, sorry. <laughs> COVID-19. COVID yes, COVID-19, yeah. So, so um, they believed, National Party firmly believed that it was going to be a one-term government and all the signs were there from the beginning mm. that, um, it wa that they weren't very um, together, that they were kind of out of practice in government and National essentially knew where all the bodies were buried so they were a very good, efficient opposition machine. Um, and so, yeah, they believed, they thought that they could take Ardern's government down. Mm. As it happened, it was the absolute opposite. Mm. But maybe, maybe we would be in a totally different position if it wasn't for COVID-19. But, you know, that was, you know, such is life. You can't yeah, reverse the it. The election yeah. thanks the Ardern government for it, what they did. Yes, so. yeah. Um, but the thing I love about your reporting, whether it's in this book or generally, is that, like, all the little details, <laughs> all the little, you know, the car that someone drives in, what they had for dinner, all the little nuances and conversations and relationships between politicians. And uh, many of those central figures, it's interesting to reflect, are gone. The likes of Bill English, Amy Adams, mm -hmm. Simon Bridges, Paula Bennett. But two remain in the National Caucus, Judith Collins and Todd Muller. What impact are they having now? Yeah, this is a tough one because um, it's really hard to see what's in their future. You know, it's really, mm. really difficult. And this, this was true of the previous Labour in opposition. A lot of those MPs stuck around because it's real tough to get a job when you're an opposition MP. <laughs> no one wants you, basically. <laughs> um, and so I guess, what now for Judith Collins? You know, she's she's actually, I don't know if you follow, you probably follow her on social media. She's actually doing a, a tremendous job in the portfolio, science portfolio she has. She's working really hard. She's out there all the time. She's she always does. She always does. She's a, yeah. So she's very effective in her portfolio. She and yeah. she was, a, you know, she was a very effective minister. Um, so she doesn't show any signs whatsoever of mm -hmm. giving up. Like, I can't. I just, you know, uh, there's a lot of talk heading into the next election about who's going to step down. We're definitely going to see in the coming months a lot of resignations. I think on both sides of the house. Um, but I don't know. Judith always has the capacity to surprise, mm -hmm. and I wouldn't. I wouldn't rule her out. I think she she might just stick with it. Todd Miller is is harder to say. I mean. Does he have a role in a future cabinet? That, mm. That's a that's a tough one. You know, he obviously demonstrated that he couldn't hack the pressure as leader. Would he be a good minister if National ascended to government next mm. year? It's it's a really it's be a really interesting thing for a future prime minister mm. to think about. But you know, he obviously had a great career. Yeah. In business, does he have a future perhaps in mental health advocacy? Because he has talked really eloquently about mm. the pressures that he faced. So mm. yeah. Who knows? Wants to watch. Last question then: Is the civil war over? <laughs> well, I always say like never predict anything in politics because you generally like you're generally from week to week. Politics, economics, yeah, 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 it's, yeah. yeah. It's, it's it's uh, yeah. I'm not a betting woman, but I think the truce is fragile. Mm. Shall we say like it all comes down to success. So far, the Willis Luxon combination have been pretty successful. I mean, the latest poll notwithstanding, um, you know. The trends are there. It feels like it's going to be a competitive election next year. If Luxon continues to flounder, as he has been a little bit, you know, in his public interviews and some of the some of the foots wrong that he's done recently, um, I don't think that the um, tensions are far from the surface. And none of the tensions that dog the National Party have been resolved, whether that's the personal ambitions, whether it's the competition between the liberal and conservative mm. and and generally just I don't want to give too much about the ending of the book away yeah. but 
there's a real tension between what does the National Party stand, what's the soul of the National Party yeah. versus are they continue, going to continue to be the party of key, which I very much see as a party that exists only to exist in government, to be, to hold power. Right, so. right. Oh, we'll, let, um, we'll let viewers find out that ending for themselves. Thank you so much for your time. Congratulations, Andrea. This is Andrea's book, Blue Blood, The Inside Story of the National Party in Crisis. Kumutu, that is Q&A for this week from the Q&A team. Thanks for watching and nā mihi ki a koutou i ngā karere. Thanks for your feedback. Hey, te rā wiki, we'll see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.